inspires you? A brilliant filmmaker, an Olympic athlete, painter, the guy who invented Velcro? All worthy candidates. Me, I admire people like this, but I can't relate to them in a personal way. But independent musicians? Oh man, I can relate. Playing to half-empty clubs, late load-ins, canceled sound checks, guest list mix-ups, last-minute rehearsals, sitting in traffic, broken gear, wonky gear, stolen gear, fighting with bandmates, waiting, all the waiting. That classic microphone beer smell. Oh, yeah. And hey, can I get a little more in my monitor? Thanks. Music is a familiar ball game. Doing it on my own? Same. The struggle, the small victories, the patience, and the perseverance. And so, it's the men and women who I talk to on this podcast that inspire me. Those in the trenches with a firm belief in what they're doing and the chops and the talent to back it up. It's not prepackaged, it's not championed by stone cutters or men in high castles. And I'd like to think that even though the world today is a mess, the world of independent music has become synonymous with goodwill, blind faith, and camaraderie. Maybe now more than ever. My guest for episode 98 of the Independent Minded Podcast embodies that positivity. His name is Ahmed Jalab, but he's better known as Sin Kane. Sin Kane, Sudanese-American, who not unlike me, wanted to make and play music since he was a teenager. And unlike me, is still doing it. He's never stopped doing it, really, whether as a drummer in hardcore bands, a sideman in indie rock bands, a musical director, or as the man in the spotlight as he is tonight, kicking off his U.S. tour by doing what most people would envy. Hanging out with this guy backstage at U Street Music Hall in Washington, D.C. We sit on a beat-up leather couch and stare at the doorless bathroom as the club staff and St. Kane's bandmates quietly hustle in and out of the room. The opening band is line-checking a few feet away, and I'm like, fuck yeah, ambiance. The hallmark of any good podcast interview. And I'm talking to Sin Kane, a black Muslim in America, with a new album named after a hard-to-pronounce French word. I don't say it in the interview, but I'll say it now. De Pace. De Pace. De Pace, goddammit. An album clearly influenced by the madness of our times, and Sin Kane struggled to live in those times. His band is a veritable melting pot. Chinese guitarist, Filipino keyboardist, Trinidadian drummer, black American bass player, and the music they make together reflects their different backgrounds. It's not quite rock, not quite funk, not quite soul. It's flashy, it's loud and worldly, filled with more than one language and even more catchy call and response hooks. All five band members sing, and what I notice most of all, they all look like they're having a blast playing these songs together. And for me, a guy who's been a solo artist for most of his musical existence, that's the most inspiring thing of all. Camaraderie. Sin Kane and I talk about misinterpreting Kanye West, getting sober, taking center stage, fancy hats, and the quest for delicious food. Let's kick it off with everybody from Sin Kane's new album, then my conversation with Ahmed Jalab. Sin Kane, right here on Independent Minded. It's Everybody, 
الأسرة أنتو ماي ماما ماي بابا شيرازن توعزة and everybody in I'm backstage at U Street Music Hall. This is my first time in the dressing room. They have a nice stand-up shower. It looks like a traditional dressing room, right? It's magical in here. With Sin Kane. That's me. Now, your name is Ahmed Galab? Yep, that's Jalab? me. Jalab? Mm-hmm. Jalab, yeah. Ahmed Jalab. Did mm-hmm. I get that right? Pretty close. How many interviews start with people asking how to pronounce your name? Probably all, almost all of them. Or, right. or they're too afraid because they... They just don't know how to say it. Well, I thought it would be my duty as a responsible journalist to at least try to get it right. People ask me more about where the name Sincane comes from. So where does the name Sincane come from? It's a mondegreen. It's a misheard word. It doesn't mean anything, actually. It comes from me mishearing a Kanye West song when I first started the band in 2007. (laughs) It's from a song called Never Let Me Down. In the song, there's a a lyric that says, I want to give us us free, like Sincane. And I misheard Sinkay as Sincane. And I thought to myself, who is a Sincane that Kanye is talking about? You know, it was actually Jay Ivey who was the rapper, but who is this guy? And it sounds like such a conscious statement. I wonder, Sincane must be this monolithic African god whose story was passed down through folklore, you know, from one generation to the next. And it must have come to the United States through the slave trade and, you know, is immortalized through African studies programs and. I feel so ashamed that I don't know who the Sin Cane is. Let me look it up online. And I looked it up online and it was completely misheard. You know, he was talking about Joseph Sin who was a slave who led the revolt in the Amistad ship. I looked up Sin Cane everywhere. There was no Sin Cane anywhere. And I thought, I got to be Sin Cane. You know, now, are I, you Sin Cane? Am I talking to Sin Cane or am I talking to Ahmed? Are they, are they two different people? <laughs> the world may never know. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I want to know is... Is it Sin Cane? Where's the, where's the accent? Is it on Sin Cane or is it Sin Cane? You know, it's funny. Depending on where you're from, people pronounce it differently. I pronounce it Sin Cane. Well, that should be the official version. Yeah, right? well, it could be. But, uh, uh, you know, it's such a universal and kind of multicultural band. So when we go to, for instance, Mexico, people say Sin Cane. Or when we go to France, they'll say Sin Can. And when we go to Germany, they'll say Zin Cane. Even in Sudan, someone said Sin Cane which sounded very Sudanese. And another person I met from Japan called it Shinkansun, which was pretty funny. So I was like, oh, whatever, you can pronounce it however you want. I would imagine you're not precious about it. I mean, no. do people call you Sin Kane? Do they think that's, that's who you are? Yes, absolutely. Do you, more people call you Sin Kane or they call you Ahmed? People call me Sin Kane a lot. People call you Sin for short or Kane for short? Or? <laughs> no, not quite that. The, they haven't gotten that personal, but uh, it's been, what, like maybe six or seven years that we've been doing this pretty full on, and a lot of people do think that my name is Sin Kane. Now, I, I do want to talk about your interesting career. I, I did some digging, as I always do. One of the last things I did was I took a look at your blog. Okay. It's a very open and honest assessment of the independent musician life. Yeah. Some interesting stories. In there, I learned some fun facts, including the fact that you're you were in a hardcore band. Yep. You once fashioned the Dreadhawk yeah, haircut. I'm trying to bring it back. You worked with David Byrne, and you performed with Usher. Mm-hmm. 
And um, you were kind of very open and honest about the fact that you were kind of drinking and stoning and tripping <laughs> during your early days. Yeah. And yeah. Th that's always been um, kind of like a taboo subject to talk about in interviews. I do kind of avoid it, but I'm a musician myself. I've certainly made music, performed music under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. What's your stance on that now? Are you... Uh, I'm completely sober now. Yeah. Well, first of all, there are many more stories. You know, it's a pretty deep well when <laughs> when when it gets to the hardcore tour stories that I've been posting. Yeah, the blog and is relatively new, so yeah. I'm sure I'm hoping and looking forward to hearing more. And I think that eventually there will be a post about why I stopped. It was fun while it lasted, but it really started getting dark, you know? Yeah, it has a tentative. Yeah, most. exactly. And, and also, you know, the older you get, the harder it is to maintain and perform at a high level while being hungover, you know? It, it, you can bounce back fairly quickly and some some when you're younger but like some people will grow up and live forever as hard-working musicians and are able to drink and do drugs and smoke and do all that kind of stuff and perform really well but after a while it just really started wearing me down and it made me realize that I just wasn't really that happy and I needed to get a bit more control over myself and I saw that it was turning into a thing where I was drinking and doing all that stuff to kind of suppress this sadness that I had. So I decided to stop and I'm happy I did. And have you been sober long enough to know the difference between yeah. what it was like before and what's like now? Yeah, it's been four years now. Oh, okay. So which is pretty nice. amount of time. Well good for you. I didn't like go into like a thing where You just did it on your own. Yeah, yeah. I just went Well that's I, even more commendable. Yeah. I, a lot I, of people I, don't have that that yeah. sort of strength or willpower, you know. I thought to myself, okay, I'm going on this tour, it's gonna last a week. Let me not drink for a week. And so I stopped drinking for a week, and I said, when I get back home, I'll assess. Maybe I'll want to drink the following week. And I got back home, and I said, oh, let me try two weeks, and then let me try three weeks, and let me try four weeks, and then it just kind of stopped. Everything just stopped. You stopped measuring. Yeah. Right? When you're first trying to kind of get out of the throes of that stuff, it's a day, a mm -hmm. week, a month, and you're always kind of like looking for some sort of variable to kind of allow yourself to get back into that yeah. sort of rhythm. I will say, I can't kick coffee. Okay. I tried. <laughs> I tried so hard. Drugs and alcohol is really easy. Coffee, not easy. Even sugar. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big sugar fiend, and I found myself weaning myself off of sugar, but coffee is just impossible. Do you drink your coffee without sugar? Yes, I do. All right, yeah. so, so you, you're kind of halfway there. I'm almost there, but it's, uh, that's the biggest thing. you got to get the mud part out. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> I'd like to refer to your latest album as a, as a collection of politically charged psychedelic party songs. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, definitely like an eclectic mix, but influences from like Sly and the Family Stone, mm -hmm. George Clinton, definitely has that sort of vibe. Yep. The album's title is a direct reference to kind of a cultural displacement that you talk about where... Being a Sudanese American in America, you felt different. You felt out of place. Absolutely, yeah. Where and do you live now? I live in New York, and I feel really at home there. It took me a while, but even going back to Sudan, I felt out of place. You know, it wasn't just the United States, but uh, it wasn't really till I moved to New York that I started realizing how great of a place that was and how much I could just be myself unapologetically there. Whereabouts you know? in New York? I live in Brooklyn. Oh, my yeah. hometown. Oh, yeah. There you yeah. go. Where in Brooklyn did you grow I grew up in the not cool, not hipster part of Brooklyn. Uh, Bay Ridge? Very close, yeah. Bensonhurst. Yeah. Bensonhurst. I was going to say that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bensonhurst when is when I said training. not cool, you automatically thought Bensonhurst. It, it's definitely <laughs> becoming cool, though, because it's the cheaper part now. Um, it's got great food, I can tell you yeah, that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I moved down to D.C. Um, after living in New York for my whole life. So you and I have had opposite experiences, I would say, right? Yeah. You, you were born in London. 
Born in London, moved around a lot. Right, you and know. but you've been in America for how long now? Since 1989, my right. whole life. So pretty like, much like yeah. your entire adult life. Yeah. When you make an album, do you think about what the first song is going to be, what the fifth song is going to be? Do you treat it in that regards? Yes. In that old-fashioned sort yes. of way? I don't think about it as much as I used to, but I definitely write a song and say, oh, this is going to be the closer, or oh, this is going to be the first song on the B-side. That's a really important one for me. It's like... The strength of an album relies on what this first song of the B-side is. Where does that sort of philosophy come from? My friend told me, Kevin Duneman, who works for City Slang, actually, he said that to me once, and it just made sense to me. If you listen to your favorite record, the first song of the B-side is technically like, or usually like a banger or like a, a heady song, but it's really smart and it's really interesting. It has cool sounds or maybe has the best lyrics or has the best arrangement or something like that. I don't think a lot of people are that conscious about what their first song of their B-side is, but I definitely become conscious of it. Well, I'll take that advice the next time I, I put a song out or songs out. Yeah. So how did it get started for you? You started as a drummer, I would assume? Yeah, I started playing drums in in bands in, in high school, you know, like, like you do with your friends. And I got really into the punk rock scene and started touring with a bunch of hardcore bands and it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I mean, to this day, all of that stuff has shaped the way I look at the world and the way that I, I do things. I'm just thinking of those horror stories that you get to tell us about probably existed a lot during that time. Yeah. That, they're actually really funny now, you know, cause of it course. was, it was like doing a tour and not making money ever, you know, and kind of dealing with the repercussions of that rough and tumble DIY situation, which, taught me a lot you know i mean i i feel like i'm a very resilient person because of the touring that i did in hardcore i feel like i've learned how to connect with people and network and be very creative in the way that i roll you know because of all of that hardcore bands kind of wear that kind of ethic like a badge of honor yeah you know? yeah at least from my experience it, i mean they love to scene. make lemonade which is it's a great way of thinking creatively and it makes everything that i do now feel like such an amazing gift. You know, I don't take anything for granted. Now, after the hardcore scene, you were a session player for many years, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what made you take the leap to be the main man? I'm sure we can talk about the differences between yeah. being a guy who just gets up on stage, gets ready to play his parts, yeah. and then gets off stage as opposed to being, I saw when I walked in here, you got some money from the club, you're divvying out the money to the band. Yeah. Like there's a lot more to... Yeah. Forget about the creative part for a second. There's a lot more to being the head honcho. There's a lot more responsibility. Right. And, how and do you, how accountability. You, uh, made the transition. <laughs> I mean, I always wanted to do my own thing. And I felt like it wasn't in my nature to just be the hired gun for these bands, you know? I learned a lot. And even now, I kind of miss being in that position. And I wonder if I'll, I could ever, like, have some downtime and do that again, you know, yeah. because it was a lot of fun. The responsibility of being a leader in a band is a bit daunting, but it bears great fruit, you know? Yeah. Like when, when things work out, it's so satisfying and it's, it's so exciting. And I just wanted to create my own world. Like I didn't want to be running off of someone else's world that like being at just someone's complete beck and call. And um, I realized that the music industry is, is kind of set up that way, you know? And I was like, well, I want to do my own thing and I don't want it to be like that. I want to like respect my bandmates and I want to like give these opportunities that I have and these resources that I have to my band and, and kind of connect with people that really inspire me and like help them cultivate things, you know, and like kind of build a community in a world of 
of music and music making that I just didn't see exist in in uh, the industry. As a guy who's been behind other front men, how have you kind of vetted your own band as far as picking the people that you want to bring on tour with or make albums with? Well, you know, we all have to have... They're a, in the room right now, so yeah, you got to be careful how you answer. We, we all have to have a mutual <laughs> love for food, and that's And, a, and uh, that's they were huge. both eating, so yeah. that's check right there. Um, <laughs> I'm really drawn to people who have dominant personalities, Okay, well, and, that, yeah. And I feel like... That would be an odd quality to have for a sideman, though, wouldn't you think? No, I think all, a lot of sidemen do. A lot of musicians want to do their own thing, but when you get the opportunity to, have, to perform at a gig that makes good money, it's like golden handcuffs. Like, you don't want to leave because you're making so much money and you're traveling and you don't have, no, you don't have that much responsibility. But I think all of us, or at least a lot of us, like, we, we dream of having the opportunity to do our own thing. When I'm around a person like Johnny, for instance, you know, or Chris or Elena in my band, like they all want to do their own thing. You know, they all like make records. Johnny is working on three records right now. Chris, our drummer, just finished an EP. Elena has been working on music for a long time. And when I hear their music, I get so inspired. I'm like, oh, wow, they're doing something. And it just reminds me of like the olden days with, with jazz musicians. You know, when I remember looking at like a Pharaoh Sanders record and looking at the personnel and see, oh, who did who played on his record and what does that guy's record sound like, you know? Right. And that's what I want this to be. I want to do Sincane, but I want everyone to know that, like, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's, like, a lot more music to be taken in from this group of people, you know? Although um, I kind of spearhead all of the musical ideas, I really like it when, for instance, Johnny or Elena come at me and they say, well, let's change it this up a little bit. Let's see if we can add this thing to the right. song, you know. In a way, surrounding yourself with talented people yeah. elevates yeah. everything from the performance to the songwriting. Exactly. And it also gives everyone in the band a sense of inclusion and understanding that they're respected. They're not just here to play my music. They're here to, to perform with a group of people together, you know, and they have a voice. That's something that you don't really see in the industry like it's you just play for someone else and you do what they tell you to do right it's a much greater experience when you let go of your ego and you hear everyone out and like you make decisions based on the interest of the of the song not the interest of yourself so it's made for an amazing experience and there's been a few growing pains but we've dealt with them and this album was like the first time that i feel like i did something the way i wanted to do it you know where the band was included but i wrote the songs and like we work together. Now, touring is a big deal for you. Mm -hmm. You're, you're going to tour for a month, then you're taking a short break, and then you're out again for two months. Yep. How do you stay sane on the road? You're talking to a guy who's released like seven or eight records and never <laughs> toured for more than a week. I mean, when I talk to artists coming in and out of town, it's still common practice. You put an album out, and then you tour your balls off because you want as many people to hear the album as possible. Yeah, yeah. Is that just become second nature to you ever since you were a sideman? Like, this is what you do, right? I should be clear that I, I really like it, you know? Yeah, you have to, and, I would imagine. Yeah, and I, I like every element of it, even when it's bad. I like it. I mean, it's in my nature. I grew up traveling a lot. That's kind of what I've what I know you know and touring just seems like a very natural thing for me I really like to connect with as many people as possible so meeting new people every night and reconnecting with friends that I've made in different towns is really really fun and to say sane we we like to eat well it's kind of like a thing where that might be more important to how we structure the tour than where we play you know? So food is the fuel that makes Sin Cane go around. We wake up every morning and we, 
we like to eat healthy in the morning, but we also try to find local flavor wherever we go. Johnny in particular and Elena too, they, they do a lot of research on like where we're touring and what delectable food cool is. Cool places you can stop yeah, on the way on the, way, on the way out. Exactly. Right yeah. on. And it just makes everything so much more exciting, you know, like to roll up to New Orleans and have the most amazing Thai food you've ever had. And yeah, think, sure. Wow, that's amazing. Or go to uh, Houston and eat amazing Cajun Vietnamese food or like yeah. all the barbecue in the South yeah, or like, <laughs> yeah, or like amazing Afghani food in, in Cologne, you know, like stuff like that is just so amazing. And, and it just really allows you to understand the community a bit more and adds a bit more weight to the entire process and entire experience. You're talking to an Italian mama's boy from Brooklyn, so food is very high on my uh, oh, yeah. my priority list over the course of my life, musical and otherwise. City Slang is your label. Yep. You've been with them for a few albums now. Yep. Mm -hmm. You seem like a very, um, I don't want to say, use the word dominating before to describe your bandmates. <laughs> um, you seem like somebody who could and probably would be capable of being in charge of your business. Yeah. What is it like to put your business in someone else's hands? Well, first of all, they are very supportive and they've been supportive from the very beginning and they are fans of the band. So working with a record label isn't always the funnest thing because there's a lot of compromise. It's just like any relationship, you know, each party has their ideas of what to do to make something successful. Um, and sometimes it's not quite how you see things going. And that can be an, a little annoying at times, but ultimately when you realize that everyone is here for the greater good of this project, then it makes for a very satisfying ex like experience. You know, Christoph and Severin in particular are just amazing people. Like Christoph, the owner of the label, flew from Berlin to New York to, to talk to me and sign me, you know? Oh, that's a great vote of confidence, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and I'll get texts from Severin at three in the morning with ideas of what he wants to do. You know, and that's really exciting. So I love those guys. I trust them. And it's it's very familial. We always have a good time together. We laugh and we butt heads. And it's all for the greater good of the project. I grew up in an era where all you would hear is horror stories about labels. Mm -hmm. And now as the industry has changed, I feel like a lot of the artists who I talk to on this podcast share that experience of finding people who are kind of like-minded individuals yep. and who kind of see eye to eye with the band and aren't looking to take advantage of them as opposed to furthering their career exactly. and elevating their status. Yep. So good on you for that. Um, when I walked in here, Elena said she liked my shirt mm -hmm. and you immediately pinned it out as a J Crew shirt. Yep. Did you work for J Crew? How did you know this? <laughs> no, I just like to shop. A common theme that I've noticed, at least over the past few albums, can we talk about the hat? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What's give me the story of the hat? Well, this hat I got made by this amazing African hat maker named Albertus Swinepool. He's a South African hat maker from New York, and my friend Xander Ferreira, actually, also a fellow African man, he um. He was wearing this amazing hat, and I asked him about it. I was like, where did you get this hat? And he said, oh, this guy, Albertus, a friend of mine, he makes custom hats. And if you want to talk to him, let me know. I'll, I'll connect with you. And I went over to Albertus's studio, and I told him uh, the style that I liked. I wanted it to be pretty plain. I wanted something that I could wear in the rain and snow that wasn't going to, like, crap out on me. So um, that's a customized, weatherproof hat. Yeah, completely customized for me and I remember walking in and it was sitting there and 
after he made it and I put it on and it was kind of like that amazing like godlike sound. <laughs> <laughs> the skies parted. Yeah. <laughs> Sin Kane and the hat. Yeah. I, I need to make locked a, eyes. <laughs> I, I need I need him to make me another one because this is oh so it's a one of a kind. This is a one of a kind. Okay. Yeah. All right. I was gonna, that was gonna be my next question. Is there like an interchangeable group of hats? I've had another one. I really like this hat company called Akudra from right, free um, plug. They're from yeah. <laughs> from Australia. But this one, this Alberta set is, is awesome. And the great thing about it is the more that I wear it, the more it kind of takes a shape of its own and it just kind of like turns into this very interesting... Soon it will meld minds with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. The beat is pumping. The trumpet is blaring at U Street Music Hall. Sincane, thank you so much, man. I'm thank looking you. forward to this tonight and good luck on the rest of the tour and um, I hope you enjoy lots of food and not too much coffee. Thank you very much. All right, man. <laughs> All right.
De Pese, it's the title track from Sin Cain's new album on City Slang. Earlier in the podcast, we heard everybody. Find out more, get the goods, sincane.com. Big thanks to Ahmed for being a classy gentleman, the fine tattooed staff at U Street Music Hall, and Hector and Christina at Chromatic PR for putting us all together. And hey there, good looking. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Thank you for being committed to 30 to 60 minutes of this madness every month. Subscribe, leave a 12-star review at Apple Podcast, iTunes. Remember iTunes? SoundCloud, and I think we're on Spotify now. Are we on Spotify now? Yeah? Investigate further if you dare. Unlock the full musical vault and archived episodes of the podcast at baldfreak.com. Send me a love letter, ron at baldfreak.com. Next time on the podcast, I promised you fury, and fury shall be delivered in the form of Jeremy Stith, singer of the Orange County, California hardcore band, backstage at Pie Shop Studios. And then, the Mecca, episode 100. They said it couldn't be done. What a filthy job. Could be worse. How? Could be raining. 